1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word. Amen. May we see that. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we come now to the Bible. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we do thank you for uh, the truth of what we've just been seeing, how good it is when we can gather together in acceptance and love and peace. And Lord, we thank you for the fruit of your presence among us this morning in that regard. We pray that would only increase, uh, especially as we go through this ongoing season of separation and um, how hard it is to even be together. We thank you that we can be. And we pray, Lord, uh, for an end to um, COVID in your, in your goodness. We continue to pray for that. As we come now to your word, we pray, Lord, that uh, by your Spirit, it would have that kind of fruit among us of joy and love and peace and gentleness and kindness and self-control. Help us, Lord, to receive your word and having received it, uh, to use your word to build up uh, your church and to reach out to those in our neighborhoods. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is uh, writing his letter to a church that was uh, founded by him, uh, we think, uh, very recently in the timeline. So the church was planted in uh, Thessalonia, which at the time was the uh, capital of the province of Macedonia. It's still one of the largest, most significant uh, um, cities in Greece, the second city of Greece, um, Thessalonia. And uh, Paul had recently just planted it. And having planted it, there was rapidly persecution that emerged. And because of this persecution, Paul and the other church planters then had to leave in a bit of a hurry. And as far as we can put together the the timeline, the most likely thing is that Paul is now in Corinth, just a little bit further down in Greece, and he's um, writing a letter to the church in Thessalonia concerned for it because it's um, experienced this persecution. He's heard from Timothy, some good reports, um, but he's writing to them and uh, as we've seen, the, the, the message he's giving to them over and over again is that as they face up to difficulties in their situation, they need to live in the light of what they know. Now, that is a key uh, Christian principle. When we are faced with things we do not know, we do not understand, that we're not sure about, 
what we need to do is to live in the light of what we do know, what we do understand, what we are sure about. Uh, Some circumstance in your life that you are perplexed by, but you know that God understands. You're not sure what's going on in the country or the world around you, but you know that God has a plan. You're concerned for um, the kingdom of God and His work, but you know God is sovereign. And though you might be perplexed by the particular circumstance and situation, the news that we read about, yet you can live in the light of what you do know. So over and over again, Paul was calling them to live in the light of what they do know. But having left that church in something of a hurry, it seems as if there was one part of the basic message of Christianity that in his hurry to leave, fleeing from persecution, he had not been able uh, to teach them. That's why he says in uh, chapter uh, 3 and verse 10, he's longing, he says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. There was something lacking. There's some part of the basic Christian message, um, Christianity 101, if you like, that he hadn't been able to tell them, and it was lacking in their faith. And so, at the beginning of our passage um, that we just had read out, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed. So, the things that they do know that he has taught them, they're to live in the light of those things, but there's one key aspect that they don't know, and he wants them to be not uninformed about this. And this aspect that they had not been uh, taught on, that they hadn't received the basic instruction on uh, in terms of Christianity 101, was uh, the return of Jesus. And so Paul spends some considerable time teaching about the return of Jesus in the, in the section we just had read out from verses 13 to 18. But then again also, um, chapter 5, uh, all the way through from verse 1 to 11, he's also talking about the day of the Lord when Jesus will return. And uh, we're going to look just at the the first of those sections this morning, verses 13 to 18. Um, But uh, they both are emphasizing this part that they hadn't yet fully understood because Paul had not yet taught them. It was an area that was lacking in their faith. And the intent of each of those sections is encouragement. So he says, verse 18, at the end of this part that we're looking at this morning, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then again in chapter 5, verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So Paul here, in in the passage we're looking at this morning, is writing to tell them about something they don't yet know, about which they are uninformed, with a purpose that once they grasp it, they will then encourage each other with what they've learned. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to seek to understand what it is that Paul is teaching here, and then do what he instructs us to do, which is to encourage one another with these words. So first of all, let's see if we can understand this part that Paul hadn't yet taught the Thessalonians about the coming of Jesus. So verse 13, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
um, by saying those who are asleep, he means uh, those who have died. And so this part of what they were uninformed about was an acute need because the Thessalonian church had recently experienced some death. It could be that the persecution that they'd been under had led to some of their church members being martyred and killed. Or it could be natural death. But you can imagine their, how perplexed they were then, that they hadn't been yet taught fully about heaven and life after death and the coming of Jesus. And they'd been told the good news of Jesus, but now some of them had died or fallen asleep. What were they to think? And so Paul was now going to teach them. So we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Well, here is a key Christian principle about dealing with death and loss. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Christians do grieve, but not in the same way that non-Christians grieve. But Christians do grieve, but in a different way. So uh, Jesus, at the uh, tomb of Lazarus, his friend, knowing that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead any moment. It was imminent. He had no doubt that he was going to rise from the dead. Nonetheless, Lazarus, uh, Jesus, at the tomb of Lazarus, we're told Jesus wept. He grieved. Christians grieve. Jesus did. Even though he knew that Lazarus was about to rise from the dead, still he grieved. Or uh, in the book of Acts, when Stephen, uh, the first Christian martyr, had been killed, we're told that godly people uh, gathered and buried him with great lament. They grieved. Not because they didn't know where Stephen had gone after he died. Stephen, in his speech, had seen a vision of Jesus and, and knew full well where he was going. They knew. But they still grieved. Why do Christians grieve even though they have the hope of heaven? Because death is wrong. Death is not how God intended this world to be. It's hard for us even to believe that anyone does die. So strange a thought it is that we who feel like we are immortal die. It's wrong. It's appropriate to lament it. Jesus did. And yet, we are not to grieve as others do who have no hope. Hope meaning not a hopeful attitude that life will move on even though the loved one is dead. 
No. Hope meaning that there is hope beyond the grave. Well, how's that? Well, Paul then will explain. So, verse 14, for, so now he's explaining this principle, the key Christian principle that we grieve, but not as others do who have no hope, for, verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So, the the reason why we have hope is based for the Christian not on an optimistic spirit about life after death. The Christian has hope because of a factual event that took place in history, namely the resurrection of Jesus. So, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus does not function merely to show us that Jesus' death on the cross worked. It it does show us that, the victory of God. It, It shows us that Jesus' death was not a failure, but it doesn't merely show us that. The doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus does not function merely to show us that Christianity is true. It does show us that Christianity is true. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we are more to be pitied than all people. It does show us that it's true, but not only does the resurrection of Jesus from the dead show us that Christianity is true. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead does not merely show us that Jesus is God. It's often preached that way, and it's certainly true. Jesus rose from the dead, therefore He's God. He's divine. But more than that, and in addition to that, and also the resurrection of Jesus shows us that we who believe in Him will one day physically, bodily, rise from the dead. As Paul says, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, that is, uh, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. So this is the key part, or at least one aspect of the key part of which they have been uninformed. The ancients, Greeks, believed that when you died, your soul was immortal and carried on. But the key part of Christian teaching is that there will come a moment, there will come a time when we will physically have a new body. That in God's sovereign power, He will somehow raise the dust and give us a physical new body. We cannot fully understand how that's possible, but we can believe it because we know that He did it with Jesus. Now, though there's one part of this that I need to explain because Paul says it repeatedly, and people often got confused about that, this, which is, Paul says, uses the phrase, uh, those who have fallen asleep or those who are asleep. And as I said already, he's talking about those who are dead. But why does he use that phrase, asleep? 
Some people have thought that Paul uses that phrase to mean that when a Christian dies, they enter into a kind of soul sleep, that they are unconscious, looked after by God under His care, but unconscious until the final day of resurrection. Well, that, that I'm sure, is not what Paul means for a number of different reasons. Uh, First of all, the Bible teaches quite the contrary, quite the reverse. So Jesus, when he was on the cross, uh, had a criminal on one side, a criminal on the other side to him. When the thief who believed in him had uh, confessed his faith in him, Jesus turned to the thief and said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. That day, when they died, that thief went immediately into the presence of Jesus in glory, consciously. Jesus didn't say to the thief, "Um, don't worry, today you're about to go to sleep for a long time and one day you'll raise, raise again bodily from the dead. He didn't say that. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Or again, in um, John chapter 14, Jesus, when he's preparing his disciples for his coming departure, that he's about to die and then rise again from the dead, Jesus tells them that he's going so that he can prepare a place for them, so that they can be with him in the mansions of glory. Or as Paul says uh, to the church in Philippi when he's wrestling, whether it's a better thing for him to, uh, to be released from jail so he can carry on ministering to them, or whether it be better to, to die, he says it's far better to depart and be with Christ, for death is gain. He knew he was going to be with Jesus when he died. Or as Paul says uh, to, to the Corinthian church, he says, when we're at home in the body... We're away from the Lord. When we're away from the body, we're at home with the Lord. So when someone who's a Christian dies, that moment they enter the presence of Jesus with joy and great glory. So then why does Paul use the phrase, fall asleep, I think for a couple of reasons. One reason is it's a more gentle way to refer to people who have died. We do the same today. We talk about people who have passed away. It's a gentle way to refer to someone who's lying down dead that they're asleep. But I think, and this is my opinion, I think that Paul uses this phrase to reflect Jesus' own teaching that reflects a good understanding, a full understanding of what death really is in the Bible. So Jesus, when he was called to the uh, deathbed of Jairus' daughter who had died, Jesus said, "She's, she's not dead, she's asleep. And then he raised her from the dead. She was physically dead, but she wasn't dead in its full sense. Because in the Bible, death means separation from God. And our physical death is a sign of the fallen repercussions of that rebellion against God. But a Christian, in this sense, does not die. 
A Christian already has moved from death to life. And so though our bodies die, physically they're just asleep. Because we're not under the wrath of God as a Christian, under death as a Christian. And one day we will wake up physically. And so Paul was clarifying this in their minds, and we'll, we'll see uh, how encouraging that is as we get towards the end of it. So four, what? okay, so that's good news, but when is it going to happen? Well, verse 15, and then on he'll explain when it's going to happen with language that is evocative and hard to entirely grasp, but beautiful and hopeful. So verse 15, he says, four, again, he's explaining when this is going to happen, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, or literally word from Lord. So in other words, uh, what Paul was saying here is this is something I have from Jesus. This is Jesus' teaching. And that, I think, is what he means when he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He's saying this is the teaching of Jesus that I'm now passing on to you and interpreting for you. So for this we declare to you by a word or by word from the Lord, by Jesus' word, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, that is people who are still physically alive when Jesus returns, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So apparently there was some um, misinformation in the congregation of Thessalonia that if you were still physically alive when Jesus returned, somehow you'd have precedence. You'd be sort of at the front of the line. Well, that's not the case. Why? Because he says, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, what does Paul mean when he says the Lord will descend and a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God? Does he mean that literally Jesus will physically come down from the clouds? Does he mean that there'll be a literal, physical, audible cry of command? Does he mean there'll be literally the voice of an archangel? which I suppose none of us know exactly what that would sound like, but certainly is impressive. Does he mean that there'll be literally physically a sound of a trumpet, the trumpet of God? I think it's certainly possible. After all, um, Paul talks about the trump of God elsewhere, and, and we're, we're, we're talking now about the physical new heaven and new earth. We're talking about the, the home of righteousness. We're talking about the whole new universe that God will bring into being on that last day. It's certainly possible that th these things are literal and physical. After all, he's talking about a physical bodily resurrection. On the other hand, it's also possible these are evocative images of realities that human language cannot possibly describe. Either way, it's glorious. 
And then he says, then we who are alive, who are left, that is those who are still alive when Jesus returns, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Again, does he mean that those who are still physically alive when Jesus returns will sort of be lifted up and kind of hover with those who've been raised from the dead together with Jesus in the physical air. It's, it's possible. On the other hand, it could be language that's evocative of realities that, that we cannot grasp with human language. Either way, the point, of course, is to encourage the Thessalonians that together with them, those who recently died, their loved ones, they'll be together with them, and that they would always be with the Lord. There'll be an eternity of, of joy and peace. So the, the Christian hope of heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, is not finally some disembodied Spirit playing a harp on a cloud. The Christian hope is a new heaven and a new earth. A whole new universe to explore. Where there'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears. And we'll be with our loved ones together with them who love the Lord Jesus. And with Jesus always. And so he says then, encourage one another with these words. Well, how can we do that? How then, and now we've grasped what Paul is saying, uh, we're no longer uninformed if we were, or it's been clarified in our minds, I hope, what Paul was saying about the second coming of Jesus. How then can we, uh, like uh, he tells the Thessalonians to do, to encourage one another, how can we encourage one another with these words? The word, um, the, the, the word encourage is the same word that Jesus used of, of the Holy Spirit, that he's a comforter, an encourager. It has the sense of coming alongside and calling forward. So how then can we encourage one another with these words? Well, first of all, we need to make sure that we are not uninformed. In other words, we need to make sure that our picture of the future is a biblical one. And it's very easy for us, even for mature Christians, and especially for young Christians like the Thessalonians were, to begin to have in our mind a picture of the future that is not this one. It tends to be that humans either think of the future in utopian ways or by contrast in dystopian ways. So humans tend to either think of the future as a, as, a, as a movement towards some coming utopia that we're going to work hard. And why not have this dream that we're going to work hard together to make society a better place, that we're going to work to make this country, this world, a place where there'll be no racism, where there'll be no abuse, 
well, there'll be no poverty or injustice, that we have that utopian dream and we're going to make it happen. And what a great dream. But over and over again, history has proven that those who try to make a heaven on earth tend to move closer to a hell on earth because it's not facing up to the human reality. We live in a fallen world. And if you base your projection of what you're trying to create in society on a future that is fundamentally orientated around an idea that humans will do good if you give them the opportunity to do good, what you'll find out is that that is not the case. There's a utopian view of the future. But then, by contrast, there are people who have a dystopian view of the future. That the world is getting worse. The culture is getting worse. The society is all doom and gloom all the time. And, of course, if you have that view of the future, your tendency will be to hunker down, to buy a plot of land in some place in the middle of nowhere and create your own bunker and prep for survival because it's dystopia it's coming but that's not a Christian view of the future either Jesus says I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say, hide in the backwoods somewhere with a bunch of survival prep. So if we're not utopians and we're not dystopians, what are we? Well, to coin a phrase, we're new-topians. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth and a new body, and a whole new universe. So we've got to be clear in our own own minds. And then, do not be uninformed. And then we have to get grief right. Paul says that you may not grieve, and this is very practical, you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And this is a part of the sermon that is very difficult for me to preach because, as some of you know, I myself have lost someone very close to me very recently. So I'm, I'm in this process. But we as Christians are to grieve, but not as those who have no hope. What does that mean? Here's, here's the way I'm thinking about it. We are told over and over again, this is standard grief counseling, and I've given this kind of counsel to many people over the years, that there is a grief process. So a bunch of studies have been done throughout the years that show that typically humans, when they grieve a loss, whether it's a loss of the death of a loved one, or frankly the loss that we're all experiencing throughout the world because of covid When we grieve a loss, we tend to go through a psychological process. You don't always follow exactly this pattern, 
But there tends to be this standard pattern of loss and then coming to acceptance. And the standard pattern tends to include some of these things, not always these things, not always in this order, but something like this is very common. You, first of all, deny it. That can't be true. How could that happen? And then you become angry. How could that happen? And then you become sorrowful. I can't believe that happened. And then finally, you accept. It happened. Time to move on. Standard grief process. And if you're uh, mourning a loss of a loved one, you in all probability will go through something like that. And frankly, the whole world is going through something like that right now with COVID. So many people are just angry. We're going through a grief process. But the Christian does not just go through a grief process. The Christian goes through a hope process too. And that means that we move from acceptance, I accept this happened, to expecting one day Together with them, we will be with the Lord always. Well, then finally, Paul says, encourage one another. So how do, how do we encourage one another? As I said earlier, the word encourage has a sense of coming alongside And when I think of coming alongside and then calling forward, the metaphor that I think is most helpful is the metaphor of walking. Think of Jesus on the road to Emmaus after he had been raised from the dead and wanted to encourage the disciples. He walked with them along the road and called them forward. And so the Christian church, we're not individuals, we're a community. And our task, whether someone is mourning the loss of a loved one or mourning the loss of togetherness, is to encourage one another forward in the light of hope. Well, let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his uh, clarity and his pastoral heart to want to make sure the Thessalonian church uh, was not uninformed. We pray that we would understand clearly uh, this teaching about uh, the second coming of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that we would live in the light of what we know too. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to uh, grasp this, to, to not grieve like those who have no hope but to grieve with hope we pray also lord that we be a church that encourages one another lord may that be a hallmark of cottage church that when people come here they feel called forward in their faith encouraged 
uh, because we have this hope uh, that is rooted in the Bible and, and the resurrection of Jesus, of the second coming of Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.